welcome to the C Word, the Conservatives podcast. Today we're talking about photographs. I'm Jenna Mathieson, an objects conservative based in South Yorkshire. And I'm Chloe Rumsey, an objects conservative based in Greater Manchester. Welcome to the show, everyone. Hi. Today we've got a special guest host with us. <gasps> Lorraine, would you like to introduce yourself? Hi, I'm Lorraine. I'm an accredited conservator and I'm based in Norfolk. Welcome back, Lorraine. Welcome. Thank you. Nice to hear you again. Yes. <laughs> Lorraine has been with us before, talking about some excellent topics. So it's really great to have you on board again. Thank you very much. It's lovely to be here. Right. So today we're talking about photos. And as usual, I would like to start with, OK, so what are our experiences with photos and like what's in our collections? Do we deal with photos? That sort of thing. Because you and I are objects conservators. Mm. What's in your collection? Like, what Do you have to deal with photos at all? Um, I would if I had time. Um, so yes, <laughs> I'm just going to say yes. Yes, it is on the big mega list of things to tackle is the photograph collection. Mm. I have had to do some sort of mechanical uh, repair of a large photograph. But in terms of the collection I've got, because the collection is very much sort of, well, no, I was going to say it's very much of the same age, but there's a chunk of old photographs. So I'd say early 1900s mm. and then more recent ones from then. But I don't know anything about those because they're not stored in the same way, Yeah. Um, which, yes, that stresses me out. But that's something that we will get to. <laughs> yes, that's true. So, yeah, I chose this topic because... I'm really interested to speak to someone who knows the stuff about photos because at the moment I have just been reading bits and going, okay, so I think this is the case and I know that colour photography is a bit different and I know that printing methods have changed, blah, 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 blah. I don't really know. Yeah. So that's where I am mm -hmm. with photograph conservation at the moment. Oh, that's fair enough. I mean, I, I expect there to be a lot of people in the same kind of boat. Mm. I mean, I know that for sure, you know, we've got an archive collection as well. And they're kind of in charge of the photos. Like, technically, we shouldn't have photos in the collection as such, although I'm pretty sure there are a couple of photo albums and that sort of thing as well. So there's always going to be a little bit of overlap, I think. But most of the photos live in the archives collection. But of course, there's not like a dedicated conservator for that bit. So if there's a problem, you know, it does still come to me. And I mostly don't know what to do with that. I actually asked our archives assistant, like, okay, so well, what have we got in terms of photographs? Because I know what I've seen. And I've seen glass negatives. And um, I've seen, you know, odd what I think of as paper photographs, you know, the old black and white ones, mm -hmm. which I know doesn't narrow it down hugely. But, you know, it's, you know, that sort of thing, right? What I think of as old vintage photos. So I know we got that. And actually, she surprised me by saying there was a surprising amount of what we might think of as more modern photographs, you know, like the kind of plasticky ones that, you know, you mm -hmm. got because you went to, to your um, camera shop and had them developed, that sort of thing, right? So that's interesting as well, because it's like, oh, that, that probably has like a whole range of different problems, right? So... I'm going to throw a small curveball in for the objects conservators and say that you've thought about all the photographs that are on paper and glass, but photographs come on every conceivable type of base that humankind has ever produced. So you'll find photographs on textiles, oh. photographs on ceramics, oh. photographs on leather. Oh, my God. Also think about photographs you might have in your books. 
So they'll be scattered throughout your collections in places you don't expect to find them. Oh, that is a fun one. Yeah. So this, this that partly answers a question I have written down for you a little bit later. <laughs> but, um, so that, thank you. Lorraine, what's your experience of photographs and um, your history with them? Okay, so the question that you were asking is how did I get into this? Yeah. So how did I get into photographic conservation? So you have to go right back to the beginning. I trained at Camberwell College of Arts and did the MA in conservation. And that's a paper conservation course, or it was then. Um, And they concentrated mainly on art on paper. But I really liked archives. So with a group of other students, we pushed and asked them to introduce an elective on archives conservation. As part of that, because generally you tend to find the world that I work in now photographs more in the archive collection than anywhere else, Mm. that photographs came up, but we didn't have any specialist training available. And it's still the same situation today. In the UK, there's really nowhere you can go to do a specific course that you will come out of as a trained photographic conservator. So I had a love of photographic conservation from the very beginning of my career. And the reason I love archives over and above art on paper is that for me, archives are about people and they're about people's lives and photographs even more so because the question that when people are asked, what would be the first thing that you would grab from your house after your family and pets? It's always the family photographs. So I really love photographs. When I started my first job, started to develop more of an interest and do little bits and pieces of training. But really, it was early 2000s that I was able to access the training. And so I did training with Ian and Angela Moore at the Centre for Photographic Conservation. I also did training with Susie Clark at, uh, as part of the International Academics Projects. And in 2006... I was awarded a Winston Churchill Travelling Fellowship to go to the USA for a month to study the conservation and preservation of film, sound and photography. Because what I'd found as an employed conservator is if you knew a bit about photographs, you were then asked to look at the film and sound because in a lot of cases they share the same bases. So that's a potted history for you. <laughs> that's a good point, actually. I, a lot of the time it does get kind of bundled in with like film and stuff like that. Isn't it interesting? Yeah, all that modern stuff. Yeah, all that modern stuff. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> uh, also, very good point that photographs hide in all sorts of places. Because as you were talking, I was thinking, oh my God, yeah, because we have obviously, you know, photographs in lockets and stuff like that. And somehow in my head, I dismiss it as jewellery and like, not like there's a photograph in there. Is that not mm. weird? Like that I've just filed that under something else. That's mm-hmm. that's strange, isn't it? But yeah, you're right. Like you can find them absolutely everywhere. And Yeah, and it could be that the photograph is degrading more quickly than the locket. Yeah, exactly, right? So I have been doing reading about photography and I've done this a number of times where I've read about the history of photography or I've tried to research photography and been confronted with all of the history of the development of photography <laughs> ever and I really appreciate if you listen to the podcast you know that I love a, I love a timeline I love the sort of historical development information but I found it quite heavy going Mm. because you're confronted with all of these different words of different types of technologies that they got through essentially until they found something that actually worked. Mm. So I have two questions for you, Lorraine. The first one, which I wrote down and the other I've thought about since you were talking. Um, The first one is, do you tend to see that much variety in the type of 
photographs that you see coming from the different technologies that have been about or do you tend to just see the mainstream ones that they realize this is the way forward we'll do this now commercialize it okay so in the collections that i work with the materials generally bulk around the 19th century and and probably into the 1950s So very rarely do I see colour photography ping in. And I don't know whether that's because we we still suffer from the idea that if it was made in the 1960s or the 1970s or even later, then it's new and we don't need to worry about it. Now, actually, the colour materials are more vulnerable than the traditional earlier photography. When I teach photographic conservation, we look at the identification of photographic processes. So we start in 1839 with the daguerreotype and also the photogenic drawings. If you have any of those in your collections, that's probably going to be quite unusual. I'm not saying that you won't, but they are rare to find in collections, particularly, uh, well, both of them. Um, I have been in collections where they've had daguerreotypes, but daguerreotypes were so expensive to produce. Mm -hmm. They really were the preserve of the wealthy. And also because of the way that the licensing worked. They're not very common in England. You get them more in Scotland and you get them more in Europe and the US, but they're not so common in England. So you generally tend to find less daguerreotypes. And I haven't seen an original photogenic drawing in anybody's collection. You generally tend to find that where the photographs start to cluster is when it became a more popular and affordable medium, which is in the 1850s, and you start to get albumin prints. Well, we do see wet collodion on glass, They generally tend to be as positives rather than negatives. Negatives, when you see them, either are glass plate negatives with gelatin on them or they then become cellulose nitrate and cellulose acetate. More acetate than nitrate because quite a lot of collections have weeded out their nitrate because of the issues around the uh, flammability and explosiveness. And then through to, like I say, from the early 20th century through to the 1950s with silver gelatin prints. So that's where my main work clusters if I see photographic materials. However, because I do collect photographic materials from myself, you do get the occasional amateur that has a go at something completely different. And unless you check everything in your collection or the collection that you're currently working on, you aren't going to know necessarily simply by looking whether one of those photographs is slightly different from the others. A different method has been used to produce it. So going back to the collection that I have, the one that I use and take around with me for identification, I have a blue zebra and we're still trying to identify the process that the person used to create a blue zebra. Wow! It's not not a cyanotype. And that's the other thing where I was saying about your photographs will hide in many places probably a lot of people if they work in archives one of the most common photographic materials they'll have is a cyanotype or the blueprint Mm, which people probably class more as print rather than photograph right yeah architectural drawing yeah yeah so cyanotype is a photographic process that uses this light sensitivity of iron rather than silver oh that's interesting so this is, I think this is the thing that I'm struggling with as I try to learn is that I've got, I think I know all the names. Mm-hmm. I've At least I've heard them before. And I have a sort of vague notion of the, the sort of mechanics of photography, but I don't have any way to link them up. I just sort of, I see photographs and I go, I wonder which of these words applies to this one. <laughs> The best source of information are the materials that have been produced by the Image Permanence Institute. And what was 
George Eastman House, which is now Eastman House. And the book I think everybody starts with is Karen Identification of 19th Century Photographic Prints by James M. Riley. And inside of that, you get a flowchart for identification, which are photographs of the eyes of of people of different photographs and different photographic types. So you can look at what the difference is under magnification of an eye produced as a salt paper print or a cyanotype or a platinotype or a carbon print or a gelatin print. And it's really useful. Wow. The book is written in a way that it does use the terminology because it has to, but it's very easy to read and very easy to follow. That sounds like that's what I need. I'll definitely link to that. That's good. So Excellent. last night, as I was preparing for this, I found um, that I was reading it, actually the book that I will be reviewing later in the episode. Um, reading this and this just stumbling on the fact that I really couldn't grasp the actual mechanics of what photography was how it worked which bit it was in front of which bit and you know how to etc and so I uh, I just had a bit of a strop at my uh, partner who is a bit of a it turns out he's uh, more of a um, cute history photograph history geek than I thought Um, and so he gave me a kind of historic photography for dummies (laughs) whilst he was cooking me dinner so now I, I I was aware of this before but I didn't have the mental image what we're talking about is the development of different materials to place mm-hmm. in a light box system yeah so when I started my journey in learning about photographic history and photographic conservation and preservation one of the first courses I did was a course called recreating photographic processes so ah. I spent a week making different types of photographic processes so starting off with the simplest which is the photogenic drawing which is basically a piece of sensitized paper that you lay something over the top of such as a a leaf or a feather Mm -hmm. and then you put it out in the light inside a frame and then you just leave it for as long as you want to leave it check periodically to see whether the image has developed or not and that's it that's the simplest form of photography. So I started off with the, the uh, photogenic drawing. We also made salt paper prints, which all went wrong, which was brilliant <laughs> because it, was, it just shows you how difficult the mediums were to handle and how when you see them, even though we now see them in a more deteriorated manner, how well and how good the people were who created them. And we also made albumin prints too. We didn't just make the prints, we then took them away and we processed them also after the image had developed. So it was a really good way to learn. And I know that's not necessarily open to everybody, but it was fantastic because it helped me, as you say, get everything straight in my head. But it is a process, actually, of learning. So you read it the first time, like I did with the course. I've done the same course, I think, three times now. So you do it the first time, you get the really basic information, but probably misunderstand it. Then you do it the second time, you go back through the notes you made the first time, you think, I didn't understand that. With the knowledge that I gained in that first course and the subsequent experience, I now see my mistakes. Hmm. And then you do it again. It's a constant process of learning. A bit like being a conservator in general, actually. Yeah, <laughs> very much so. I have some more books as well. I'm just going to get those too. Oh, I... brilliant. Man, I love some reading recommendations. It's so good. I know, it's so good. 
Right, so another book that clearly lays out how historic photographic processes look is Photographs of the Past, Process and Preservation by Bertrand Leverdream. And it's an excellent book. It's so good because it describes the history, but it's all illustrated. So everything, there's that so many photographs. Amazing. Of, yeah, it's a really good book. As we're here, what's an album print? An album and print is the main photographic print that you'll find used in the UK and probably worldwide in the 19th century. It was introduced um, in 1850 and it was in use until the 1890s. And like I said, it's the most dominant form of uh, photographic print of the 19th century. And it's on paper and it's the ones that look very yellow in your collections. Ah, they're made as in albumin they are made using eggs oh yeah can i just say it's amazing what humans have used eggs for <laughs> just <laughs> yes. through time yeah. so while we're here um i would like on my little list at least i've got down uh, modern photography my interest lies in what was done to the paper to allow a photograph mm. to be put onto it uh, and what are the materials that I am then dealing with when I get um, when I when I encounter something that I would consider a modern photograph so that includes color photography obviously okay so but when massive when... question yeah. <laughs> okay so um well the issue around modern photography is its um, instability so ah. what, I, what I want to say is there are two mantras that go with photographic conservation and preservation well, there are two things that I always say this there are two things that you must remember and if you remember nothing else these are the really important things to remember so the two things that you must remember is that identification of the photographic process is key mm. because different photographic photographic processes react differently so for example some can get wet and they'll be quite happy getting wet others hate getting wet so even if you're not going to do any treatment where you store them in your store if you've got for example water pipes running through your store or you get water coming down a wall or you've got drains that routinely flood that's not where you store your photographic processes that are sensitive to moisture or water so first of all identification of the photographic process is key and the second one is the mantra to remember for preservation which is cold and dry so if 1970s color photography the only way to preserve that is freezer storage, so sub-zero storage. Wow. Wow, I didn't know that. I mean, I say that because, you know, I'm just thinking of, you know, what's just in people's homes. They definitely don't have them in the, you know, mm, Yeah, that's what I was thinking. You know, yeah. I'm, I'm kind of cold sweating on behalf of people as well as collections. <laughs> well, you can use a domestic freezer. You can actually put it in a household freezer. There is a um, system that you have to use in order to pack everything up because you have to protect the photographs from the relative humidity in yeah. the freezer. However, you can use a domestic freezer, because one of the things that I've run into routinely is that, well, we can't put our photographs in cold storage because we can't afford the really expensive freezer that goes alongside that. And then you have to say to people, well, actually, you just need to go to Argos and buy a freezer. <laughs> yeah. Just one that's not... Um, not frost free so you don't want one that self defrosts yeah. because you don't want it cycling but as long as you follow the system it was developed by a gent called Mark McCormick Goodhart and the process is available on the internet it takes you step through step by step what you need to do in order to pack your photographs to make them safe for storage in a freezer you can do it at home amazing go on, I'm going to tell everyone about this 
<laughs> yeah. I mean, we are because this isn't a podcast, but, you know, I'm going to tell everyone. <laughs> what happens in terms of stability between the 70s and, say, the 90s? So I say the 90s just because I'm, you know, 30 years old-ish and I'm thinking, what about all those photographs that my parents have stuffed in the, you know, <laughs> bookshelves or wherever? I was going to say, please tell me the attic. <laughs> <laughs> Not quite the attic. <laughs> um, so I'm guessing stability increases massively between the 70s and the 90s but does it increase as much as i hope it does um it doesn't increase (gasps) so generally um don't tend to think of photographs in terms of if it was made in the 1850s it's going to be more stable than one that was made in the 1870s Mm. what we look at is the process that was used to make that photograph Mm -hmm. So it depends what process was used to make the photographs. And again, there's a huge amount of different types of photographic processes that are used in the 20th century to produce colour photographs. So there's another good book that people might like to read, which is 20th Century Colour Photographs, The Complete Guide to Processes, Identification and Preservation by Sylvie. Um, And now I'm going to ruin her surname. Uh, Pension, which is P-E-N-I-C-H-O-N. And there are a vast number of different photographs. Hooray, processes. that's the one I'm gonna that's the one I'm reviewing. <laughs> yeah. Well, you can tell <laughs> Thank you for working out her second name for me. That's great. Pension. <laughs> um, I'm so curious when there'll be uh, maybe books about twenty first century. Something that came up I wouldn't say super recently, but basically um uh, I found that my other half had something like I had like a tiny photo printer and it was called a pogo and uh, mm. it was a thermal printer that was it used a kind of technique called sync uh, or zero ink full color printing technology and uh, it's like a thermal paper mm. so it it kind of oh, instantly great. prints stuff and similarly you know I'm thinking of how incredibly popular polaroids were and now the polaroid revival you know is mm. ongoing and there's a lot of instant photography from that point of view and i'm so curious like how are these gonna fare and because he was saying that one of the reasons he didn't bother fixing the pogo printer was that he found that the photos like faded really fast that they um they they were fun to look at but they d- didn't really keep and if he's noticed that he noticed that quite quickly it's just mm. terrifying to me like oh right so they deteriorate very fast that's probably not a good sign and it, it because you know as a conservative we're all compulsively kind of thinking about these sort of things i was just like oh god do you have any important ones should we scan them in um <laughs> and you know immediately started fretting but it did make me think you know about all of these sorts of trendy kind of photograph materials that we've got going on now like the 2000s to now um mm. how are they gonna fare and so interested I, I hope there are some good papers out there you never know there might be some really good papers i just don't know about them and if there are those sorts of resources please do get in touch because i would love to see them it's not like we've perfected photos and it's not like we've like made the ultimate archival print at some point i mean we might have but that's not what we're using we're getting like mm-hmm. boots photo prints whatever they use you know like that sort of thing like yeah you're taking your images digitally now but aside from the fact that digital storage and all that that's like a whole different thing um the fact that when we get them printed you know they're whatever material they use at the print shop or at the company that we're using you know the ones where they just send them home to you mm. you know it's it, how do they last and stuff and it's not like the stuff that we're making now is more stable 
we should never fool ourselves into thinking that oh we've nailed this now it's fine no no no, no. i think i was well fooled at that though i think i was well fooled <laughs> So what kind of damage do we see? What's the most common kind of damage that we see? I would say the most common damage that you see will be probably mechanical damage caused by us followed by, well, it's probably 50-50, the actual deterioration of the photograph itself because they are complex chemical objects Mm. that contain the um, seeds of their own destruction <laughs> oh a brilliant sentence <laughs> i remember this right so that i've not done a lot of um photography myself you know like old school but in school i did a little bit of um actually my friend did uh, like a module on like black and white photography and she then invited me into the dark room and we like played with uh, developing photos and the fact that it was so important to rinse things correctly for them mm. to remain stable always stuck with me well i mean photograph is basically chemicals on whatever support yeah. that you put it on and like everything that we work with when they were made in 1860 they weren't made to last until 2020 or beyond mm. they were made to sell to an audience to enjoy um, yeah. and to make money for the business yeah that's a good point. It's kind of amazing that we still have any, which is, you know, brilliant. Yes. Yeah, it is quite amazing that we still have them, really. So another type of damage that I see quite a lot of is pest damage. So you see a lot of uh, mould, 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 mould. Gross. Gelatin prints, lovely substrate, mm-hmm. lovely source of food there, tasty. And insect damage, particularly on the gelatin prints. I mean, they'll eat most things, but the gelatin are the ones that they love the most. When you were talking about mechanical damage earlier, I immediately mm. thought of, you know, like damaged corners and photos that have been folded and that sort of thing. Was there, is there like other mechanical damage you see a lot? Well, if you think of your glass plates, it's oh, yeah. anything that you can do with glass. Yeah. I also have a handling collection, my teaching collection. Um, and I had, well, I still have it, a glass plate in there, which one of the students picked up by the corners and it snapped in half. Oh. It's the, corner sna- the corner snapped off, oh. which was brilliant because um, they'll never do it again. They've certainly learned how to oh, handle yeah. glass plate negatives. That's true. <laughs> how do you handle glass plate negatives? How do you avoid that happening? As we're here. <laughs> well, when you're handling any photographic materials, you should wear gloves. Mm-hmm. So gloves are key. And it's not cotton gloves. It's not latex gloves. It's nitrile gloves. Mm. And the reason for not wearing um, latex gloves is because of the latex containing sulfur, which degrades the silver. Ah, interesting. So glass plate negatives, you should never put down onto a, a hard surface like a workbench or if you've got like a plastic coated workbench because you can form a vacuum underneath and they can basically almost seal themselves onto the um, surface that you're working on so when I work with glass plate materials I have what is called I call conservation cushion so basically what that is it's the section of a a window mount that you don't use so when you're making mounts and you've got that card inner um, it's a way of reusing that so it's that covered with a piece of unbleached linen and then over the top is a lens tissue. The lens tissue is removable so when it gets dirty you just pull that off and put another piece on and I will put the glass plate negatives or glass plate positives onto the conservation cushion and I will always work on top of the conservation cushion as well, hence the lens tissue and that means that you if you want to pick up the 
photograph and move it from one part of the studio to another you're not actually handling the photograph itself and if you accidentally turn around and and walk into something it's the board Mm. that gets the damage and not the object this is so interesting because I and this is something that I wrote down to to uh, to remind myself of throughout this recording is that some people might associate the um, conservation of photographs as kind of similar or um, hand in hand with with paper conservation. Um, and I know you're from the paper conservation background, aren't you? Yeah. But f- the conservation of photographs is extremely multidisciplinary. You're not ever just dealing with paper. Mm. You're not ever just dealing with glass. You've mm. got everything going on. Yeah. I mean, you've got metal plates as well. Yeah. So, you know, you've got um, tin types, which are on a metal substrate, a metal support. So I am now going to offend probably every paper conservator out there. Paper <laughs> conservators should not treat photographs. It's as simple as that without any training, because photographs and paper are entirely different i'll give you an example so many years ago i applied for a job which was a very simple job rehousing um photographic glass plates dry gelatin dry plates and the estimate had been prepared by a paper conservator for the institution there were so many mistakes in that estimate in terms of what treatment and what housing the plates needed that actually they would have been better to have not rehoused the collection. They would have been better to have left it in its um, brown paper envelopes because it was quite happily sitting in its brown paper envelopes, deteriorating, yes, but deteriorating slowly and deteriorating in an, an environment it had known since the day it was made and the replacement was going to cause more damage. Wow, that's really interesting. I think it's that thing with paper conservators and everything has to be acid-free because obviously acid is the main form of deterioration of paper. But photographs are more tolerant of acidic conditions than paper is. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah, so actually you can create a worse environment by improving their storage (laughs) as you see it because you haven't improved the storage, you've made it worse because you haven't taken into account the specialist requirements of photographs and the treatment and or the sort of care the preservation of photographs as i said the mantra is easy it's cold and dry and you shouldn't be scared of preserving your photographs but neither should you be blasé about it so a little bit of knowledge is a dangerous thing and i mean all conservators exercise this but knowing your boundaries and knowing that you know there's a problem, but then seeking the specialist because there are, you know, there are tasks that I would would not take on. For example, textiles, mm-hmm. metals conservation, because I'm not a textiles or a metals conservator. So I would always go and seek the specialist advice and pass the work on to the specialist. Mm. So, what would your advice be to the person that wrote those recommendations for the job, to somebody approaching this situation, listening to this and going, "Oh God, but I've got to design a project." What would you suggest that they do? If you were designing a project, then I would say whatever your situation, whether you're employed or self-employed, is to ask your employer or your client to ask to get a specialist in for even a day or half a day to Mm -hmm. look and cast an eye over and get that information in. Don't try and solve a problem yourself that you aren't equipped to solve. No, it's a, it's a good point. Ask for help. Fair enough. <laughs> yeah, no, but, no, but ask for help. That's it's that's yeah. Yeah. solid advice, or isn't it? put something on Twitter, you know, yeah. or Instagram or whatever your question is. You know, there's a vast community of conservators out there. They're all really helpful. No conservator wants to 
see another conservator struggle or, you know, any other person struggle. And if they can help, they will. So I have recently put a question on Twitter about treating woodworm, live woodworm in shelves. Mm. And the answers that I've got, the responses I've got are absolutely fabulous. Yeah, you're right. Asking the community for help is a brilliant way of doing that. And people do share. And there is absolutely Mm -hmm. no harm in asking a question. It's not a lack of professionalism to like Mm. realise that you don't have all the answers. You're not meant to have all the answers Mm. (laughs) because you haven't lived a thousand years and (laughs) you you can't have all the answers so you know sharing and pooling knowledge that's what it's all about you know like we need to share yeah knowing what you don't know and then asking for help is actually part of the professional standards yeah exactly so we haven't talked about storage material let's go for storage materials so that references the uh, sort of references the the um, rehousing project anecdote that you gave us just now Lorraine and it also ticks off my bullet point of care and display of collections mm-hmm. we've obviously gone for the we've we've covered the the cold dry storage but how would you house them what are your storage materials I did write two blogs for preservation equipment last year called Storage Materials for Photographs, Part 1. Oh, yeah. What papers, boards and plastic to use. And Part 2, what to put in what. They are there on the preservation equipment um, website for people. And they're written for the general public, so people who've got photographs at home. So I have tried to take out as much of the terminology and abbreviations and and the language that photographic conservators will use to other photographic conservators. Mm. So photographs on paper can go in either paper or plastic. The issues you have around that is, well, what papers and plastics should I be using? And there are international standards. There's also the British standard and, and clearly the national standards in the country of wherever the conservator is based. But because those those blogs were written for people at home, I mean, who is going to remember, ah, yes, well, you know, my paper should conform to ISO 185, whatever, <laughs> whatever. You know. Nobody's going to remember that. And I doubt very many conservators wander around remembering the ISOs and British standards for the various different pieces of work that they do. Mm. So the storage materials that are unsuitable is papers and boards that contain acids, colorants, alkali, sulfur and lignin. And these can cause a diverse range of damage. For example, it can cause your photograph to become brittle, the images to fade and yellow as they react with the adhesives and the colorants can stain photographs. So um, glassine, you see an awful lot of that with photographic materials um, in albums as an interleaving paper between photographic images. And you see that in terms of the envelopes that individual photographic prints um, and glass is stored in. Glassine is unsuitable as a long-term storage material. I hate to think how much glassine there is in photographic collections across the country and indeed across the world. If you do have glassine in your collection, I'm not advocating that you panic about it and suddenly on Monday go in and remove every piece of glassine. But it is something that you need to bear in mind that if you have the opportunity, removing the glassine would be a good idea. And the reason for that is that the glassine becomes acidic, brittle and yellow. It can cause damage to the emulsion on your photograph. So this both photographs on paper and on glass. If you want to choose papers and boards, what you're looking from are ones that are made of cotton fibres or unbleached wood, bulk, wood pulp um, and has an alpha cellulose content of 
of, of 87% or above if you're using bleached wood pulp, is free from lignin dyes, waxes and metallic particles, is free from sulfur and peroxides and has a neutral sizing. Now, there's this huge debate that goes on in photographic conservation between buffered and unbuffered. The way that the debate is at the moment is that we recommend using unbuffered papers. There is information out there that says you can use it buffered papers with different types of photographic materials. The only one where it's an absolute no-no is the cyanotype. However, because it's so difficult to remember, I can put a salt paper print in this, but I can't put a photogenic mm. drawing in that. Yeah. It's easier just to say... All of your photographic materials should go in unbuffered paper until the research is at such a point we can definitely say it's okay to use X, Y and Z. Yeah. Photographic materials should always go into paper that has passed the photographic activity test. Mm -hmm. So you'll see it referred to in the literature from the suppliers as PAT and they generally tend to do like they do. With, oh, that's what that means. Oh. Yes, the photographic <laughs> activity test, yeah. I've seen it, but I've never understood it. That cool. <laughs> so if, if it says it's passed the photographic activity test, that's a good, that's a thumbs up. Okay. <laughs> so um, photographs on paper can go into either paper enclosures or a plastic enclosure. Um, I tend to use plastic as in polyester mylar or melanex you can use some plastics of a lower quality but again i have the issue around the confusion that can arise mm. and so i think it's i always find it's easier to say to people that they can use one thing rather than three things yeah. because then they can't remember which of the three things yeah. you said they could use yes definitely so i recommend using polyester pet mm -hmm. however there is a cost element to that and the plastics which are of not such good quality but are acceptable for use with photographic material are less expensive mm. so if you are rehousing a thousand photographs or you've got a very limited budget one of the other plastics are okay to use then that might be a solution however i always say Melanex, Mylar, PET, however you refer to it. And there are advantages and disadvantages to using paper enclosures or plastics. You have There are some general things you have to remember. The material and surface characteristics of enclosure should not scratch or braid the print that they're used um, whilst they're in storage. And ideally, a photographic enclosure should be designed to be removed from the object and not one that the object is removed from. It should promote safe handling and access to the materials. It should provide adequate protection and have ageing characteristics that are as good, if not better, than the photographic material. And they must provide adequate physical support to protect the material during handling and allow it to maintain the posture that you need it to maintain whilst in storage. Um, one of the issues with polyester, of course, you can have issues regarding mould growth. Mm. You can also have issues with a phenomenon called ferrotyping. Okay, so ferrotyping basically is when you put, for photographs, but it happens with other materials mm. too. So it can also oh, that's probably when, where I know about it from, actually. Yeah. So it, happens, it can happen when you glaze um, objects as well, glaze photographs, is mm. that you have the shiny surface of either the plastic or the glazing. The photograph comes into contact with it and it rubs against it and it changes the surface characteristics of the photograph 
so there, you know there are pros and cons and i think it, this probably is a podcast in itself yeah <laughs> yeah agreed <laughs> never put plastic based negatives into plastic or plastic based photographic materials into plastic oh yeah you're saying about you have this you want it's on your to-do list to treat your photographic materials yes what i find is that the photographic materials yeah it's like a wish list and we'll get around to them one day but actually <laughs> that's yeah. exactly it the parchment you can leave because that's yeah. not going to deteriorate if it's 500 years old that's quite happy the photographs being complex chemical materials mm. aren't going to wait for you and when you are ready to go back to them they might not be there yeah yeah they are definitely they're on our sort of next funding bid part of the the reason that they are on the list is the the sort of access issues of um them being really dispersed essentially Mm. but also because there are a number of them that um i've seen and they are not in ideal storage conditions Mm. particularly a role of i don't know what it is because i haven't opened the tin but there's a uh, there's a role of negatives and i think Mm. it's film negatives i don't think it's cellulose nitrate but i do have concerns that it could be something and there's yeah. not very much of it, admittedly. Well, one th- the one thing with cellulose nitrate is that it can invalidate your insurance. I so agree. if you don't tell your insurers that you have cellulose nitrate on the premises in the store, it can actually invalidate your insurance. Now, I know that can mean potentially if you contacted your insurers and said, we're storing cellulose nitrate, open up a whole can of worms. Mm. But if there was to be a fire, even if the cause was malicious or an electrical fire, they could say, well, we're not paying out because you had cellulose nitrate. Wow. So what age would that, what age would I be worried about? So cellulose nitrate was introduced in 1889 and it was used through until of the 1930s when safety film because of the issues around the flammability safety film was introduced however there are no like everything there's no definite cutoff date Mm -hmm. so photographers used up old stock so you might find it you know in a collection from the 1960s because a photographer is using up old stock right yeah but I just thought it was amazing because it sneaks in in places you don't expect. <laughs> and of course, if you're working with objects, you've got cellulose nitrate tucked around in other parts of your collection anyway. Yeah, yeah, that's true that we're just not aware of. Mm. I think for for my own personal collection, I'm lucky that it isn't really that old. So I think even considering um, the sort of re uh, the the use uh, using up of stock and from assessing it and giving it a sniff and everything um mm. i don't think that what i've got <laughs> is cellulose nitrate um well the sniff rem- test is very good for cellulose acetate because if you go in and you can smell vinegar you know very yeah. well that you've got cellulose acetate yeah. and i have yeah. to say that every time i go into a collection that has got cellulose acetate in it that's degrading i always fancy some f- chips but you have to be careful because you do should really be using your ppe if you can if it's off gassing to that extent Mm -hmm. plus something that i wasn't aware of um and was brought to my attention a couple of years ago is if you're a contact lens wearer oh god um, you should take your contact lenses out (gasps) because it can cause damage to your eyeball wow oh my god i didn't know that (laughs) 
Oh, yes. I, I'm a bit squeamish with uh, contact lens con- facts about <laughs> contact lenses, so that's sort of <laughs> horrifying. Wow! So it does mean that anybody that's going in to assess your plastic-based negatives, if they're mm. contact lens wearers, or if they're working with the plastic-based negative collections, if they are contact lens wearers, should take their contact lenses out before they start work. So for somebody, if somebody is listening to this thinking, oh God, I haven't assessed that corner of this, the, the store yet and I think it has cellulose nitrate, I don't want to invalidate my um, insurance, what would you suggest they do? So there are tests that you can carry out to identify um, cellulose nitrate and cellulose acetate. There's a lot of visual guides that you can use. The thing is that until cellulose nitrate and cellulose acetate start deteriorating um, from simply looking at the photograph alone forgetting all of the identification marks that might be on the negative um, they can look like one another there is no simple visual identification one thing that you can do to say that cellulose nitrate and cellulose or cellulose acetate and I suppose before they go into that corner of their um, store they should have thought about the issues around their own personal risk Um, and put in place the PPE that they need to protect themselves before they start handling the materials. There are different types of tests that you can use. The the ones for cellulose nitrate are mostly destructive, although you only need a very small amount of material. There are guides that you can use that will outline all of the different types of tests that you can hold. The book that I would recommend that specifically deals with um, photographic negatives, which does outline the testing is Photographic Negatives, Nature and Evolution of Processes by Maria Fernanda Valverde. It comes with a, a nice poster that you can put on the wall to, to remind oh, yourself. Love a visual aid. Of, yeah, different types of photographs. So there are different things you can do. I mean, mostly the collections that I go into, the negatives have started down the route of deterioration, so it's very obvious right um what they are i mean the cellulose nitrate that i once saw and again this is this is the issue of a conservator not knowing what they were doing they had some severely degraded deteriorating cellulose nitrate which they had put in a plastic bag to store them which was causing obviously a build-up up of mm. all of the volatile organic compounds all of the gases which was absolutely terrible but prior to that before the conservator put them in the plastic bag the um, nitric acid that the cellulose nitrate was producing as it deteriorated had eaten through the bottom of the box had then or had 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 migrated i would say through the bottom of the, the cardboard box they were stored in they had the, the the nitric acid had then come in contact with the powder coated metal shelving and it had eaten off the powder coating it had then exposed the metal underneath and exactly where the photo so it's a square of photographic negatives in the box exactly where those photographs were sitting though on the bottom of the box and on the shelf was a square rusty mark oh my god i'm wearing that mask of horror again <laughs> Wow. <laughs> yeah. So it's again, you know, it's you know, it's not to be messed with. Um no. <laughs> and I think I think sometimes when you listen to It's like a really angry photograph. <laughs> I'm gonna yeah. eat the shelf. I think when you listen to sometimes when you listen to photographic conservators talk, it can sound really scary. It's not scary at all. It's just a process of learning. Mm. 
you know, you can do it, providing that you source the correct information beforehand and you speak to a specialist, mm. you know, somebody who is experienced with photographic conservation. And even if you speak to them, they don't have to come in. Like I said, they'll share their information with you. There's no need to be scared of photographs. Treat them with respect, yes, um, and know your limitations, but don't be scared of them. Oh, I think that's like the best note to end on. Don't be frightened of your photographs. Thank you so much, Lorraine. Hi, everyone. Today I'm going to be reviewing 20th Century Colour Photographs, The Complete Guide to Processes, Identification and Preservation by Sylvie Penishan. Like all books of this type, we start with a context setting, history of chapter. This immediately establishes a focus on colour, the behaviour of light and the biology of the human eye. We can all imagine that the road to colour photography was not a short one, and the discussions and descriptions of what happened along the way will be of just as much interest as the rest of the book. Anyone who heard my review of Gwen Spicer's Magnets book will know that I love separated boxes of text, and this book has used this format very effectively to focus on different topics such as additive colour synthesis. These subjects are centrally relevant, but outside the narrative of the text. And if you wanted more science than story in your research, you could probably do just as well just reading these. Knowing nothing about the history of colour photography, I chose to read both. Into chapter 2, Additive Colour Screen Process, I did begin to feel a build-up of general confusion. I started with a pretty minimal understanding of the basic mechanics of photography, and the language used throughout the book does assume a basic knowledge. This isn't actually an issue as there are millions of instructional videos or descriptions online if you just need a little bit of context setting. In chapter 2, however, I was met with a beautiful timeline, and I love timelines! This one displays all the different methods, the dates of development, the length of time they're in use from, and this runs all the way from the late 19th century to the present day. This is great, as your identification of an object can start at the approximate date, and you can research the relevant characteristics to look out for, because who can keep all of the information on board all the time? Well, yes, okay, photography conservators, but most of us aren't. Into this chapter we encounter the core method of communication that continues throughout the chronological structure of the book. That is, name of method, description of manufacture and use, and then, most importantly, an example photograph of three different magnifications to demonstrate the physical differences in the methods, and of course the identifying characteristics. Perfect. You don't need to be a conservator to use this book. You don't even need to spend much time if you don't have it in a what am I dealing with here collections assessment, for example. Going through the whole process and development highlights the range of material remains or associated objects that you might expect to find in your collections. The rest of this chapter goes on to describe and illustrate developments and characteristics to this process, the additive colour screen process. And though this is an effective reference book to dip into, I advise taking the time to go through it more closely. There are so many developments and variations to the processes that trying to flick through for a general impression has been rather overwhelming for me and a bit confusing. If this second chapter is anything to go by, and it is, that's because the book contains everything that you could need to know about colour photographs in the 20th century. To summarise this giant web of information are some really beautiful figures with technology names and magnifications all included in one place. This has really helped with any feelings of confusion that I had. The chapter ends in my favourite way, a page about the housing, storage and display recommendations for this process. Chapter 3, Pigment Processes. This chapter follows exactly the same format with this process as the one discussed in Chapter 2. 
It has the timeline, the different methods, and the visual examples at different magnifications. Pleasingly, this process has examples of use much further towards the present day, and I found it very interesting to see the developments of use between the 30s than the 80s and 90s. And in the second half of this chapter as well, we have advice on identification, materials deterioration, and of course, our friends, advice storage and display techniques. The following five chapters follow in this format, and I'm struck by how many different methods have been in use and development for 80 or so years. I'm also struck by how increasingly complicated this field is. There are so many developments and technology offshoots and commercial names and this book has done an exceptional job to communicate it clearly. Lastly is chapter 9, Preservation and Collections Management. Yay! Though short and repeating some of the specific information provided in the previous chapters, this one acts as a very helpful, to-the-point summary of the key practical information that can be applied to these collections in general adding at the end of this chapter some advice and methods for monitoring change. Did I say lastly? The book doesn't end with chapter 9, and I was impressed to find appendices A, B and C of chronologies of different commercial brands, identification numbers and names, so you can look up specific technical information for what you have in your collection. After this is the ever-helpful glossary, though there were some instances where I felt it didn't go quite basic enough for my initial level of knowledge. If you want even more details, then there is also a pretty extensive notes section between the glossary and the bibliography. So in conclusion, this book contains probably all the information you need on 20th century colour photography to date. It summarises a hugely lengthy, hugely complicated science and history of development and has used different methods such as diagrams, descriptions, images, summary sheets and so on to lay it all out for the reader. I feel this book has achieved this in the least confusing way possible, given the challenge that they faced in this field. It's chronological, but provides diagrams to demonstrate overlaps and interrelationships. And it's highly visual, but putting each image in a descriptive and historical development context to help us avoid muddling up characteristics. The conservation-specific information is limited, as with all books of this type, directed at the caretakers in general but not as limited as some that I've seen. If you are interested in colour photography, if you have a collection to care for, for example, then I definitely recommend this book. However, it is most definitely not a light read, and I would suggest trying to arrange some face-to-face training, attending workshops or online lectures or something, if you're aiming to develop expertise in this topic, as, as I'm learning, photographs and associated materials are highly varied and complicated chemical objects. Thank you very much for listening. Hi, and welcome back to the Benchwork Bar. I'm Amanda Richards, and today we'll be making the albumin and its mocktail. Um, today, it's going to be a little bit scary if you are unsure about using raw egg in a cocktail. Uh, you have two options here. Um, you can admit it or you can use a substitution such as um, the pasteurized egg yolk substitute in your local market, or even about a tablespoon of the water that you get or the liquid that comes from the can of um, chickpeas or garbanzo beans, whatever you call them locally. That actually is a fantastic egg substitute in general. All right, so let's get to it. So the albumin is basically a whiskey sour, but my twist on it here is that we're going to be using Carmara. 
scotch and I wanted to use this because the color and the smokiness that you get from the peated scotch gives it a really interesting flavor that most bourbon would not have. And I think having that smoke in there kind of just reminds me of like the smoke damage you get on like some images and all the smoke sponges and all that fun stuff. So I guess enough story time. Let's get to it. So we'll start with our shaker as always, and we're going to do what's called a dry shake. So we're not going to add any ice yet. We're going to add that at the end. So we're going to start with two ounces of scotch. So pour that into the jigger here. Straight to the shaker. And then I pre-measured out three quarters of an ounce of freshly squeezed lemon juice. And then half an ounce of 100% pure maple syrup. I like using this because it also has a little bit of a lightly smoky flavor as well that you don't quite get with like simple syrup. So if you don't have maple syrup, simple syrup or just a little bit of sugar is fine too. So pour that in. That was half an ounce of that. And then we're going to go ahead and crack the egg white in. So I've got a bowl. Going to crack the egg and going to just tip it back and forth until it separates. And you'll want to make sure you're using very, very fresh eggs. All right. And then you can either measure it out so you get an exact measurement which most of the recipes I was following was using half to three quarters of an ounce in there, which is just about a whole medium sized egg. All right, now once all of your ingredients are in here, oh, the bitters, that's right. Um, and then just a dash of bitters. Uh, I think most recipes call for the Angostura, um, whatever, but I like the orange bitters. So we'll just add some of that in there and top it off and we're going to shake it for about 10-15 seconds or so really aggressively so all right so once you get some good shakes get a nice frothy cocktail and now add the ice. All right, so we've emulsified the egg white in the cocktail, and now we're going to chill it and dilute it. So I'll cover it this time. And again, we'll just do a strong shake for another 30 seconds or so. recipes that I was following was showing to double strain so you get all the little chunks of ice out but personal preference. So pour that in. 
there you have your albumin cocktail. Uh, let's go ahead and do the mocktail. So, again, we'll start with a clean shaker. Again, no ice to start with. We're going to start dry shaking as well. So, for the mocktail, you will need two ounces of very strong brewed black tea, and you'll want it as cold as possible. So, go ahead and make this ahead of time. So, we'll pour in the two ounces of brewed black tea, then again, our three quarters ounce of freshly squeezed lemon juice. Then this one is half an ounce of grenadine. Okay. And a quarter ounce of maple syrup. Again, you can use simple syrup if you don't have maple syrup. Total personal preference. Alright, so once again, we'll crack our egg into a bowl. And I like to do it into a bowl first, um, just in case there's any shells. Alright. And then again, about half to three quarters of an ounce of the egg whites. Alright, all of our ingredients except for the ice are in the shaker. So we will go ahead and put our shaker together and do the first dry shake again for about 15 seconds or so. Once you've shaken that aggressively for about 15 seconds, you will add in the ice. And the top back on and shake it for about 15 seconds again. Alright, now that that is aggressively shaken, we'll go ahead and Grab the whiskey glass or short glass and go ahead and strain that straight into that cup. And there you go. Let me know how you like the albumin. See you next time. If you're enjoying The C Word and would like to support our work, then please consider becoming one of our patrons. For as little as $1 per month, you can help us keep our episodes online and more of them coming. Patreon helps us meet our regular costs for the show, and also to plan ahead so we know roughly how much of a monthly budget we've got. That's super helpful when you're trying to do something special like buy a better microphone or save up to go to a special event. Your support also helps keep us free of advertisements. In return, our supporters get access to our archive of extended episodes, which you can only access on our Patreon page. Yeah, for that $1 a month, you get a little extra audio enjoyment. We've crunched the numbers, and it's about 10% extra content on a regular basis. Well, that's not bad for less than a cup of coffee, eh? If supporting us sounds like something you'd like to do, then head over to patreon.com slash the C word and join our bunch of absolute champions.
and a warm welcome to our newest patron, David. Thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for listening. You've been listening to Lorraine Finch, Chloe Rumsey, and me, Jenna Mathiason. Join us next time for an episode about coming back to work. In the meantime, check out our website at theseawood.show, tweet us at theseawoodpodcast, or simply email us on theseawoodpodcast at gmail.com. The intro and outro music is Spring by Didi Music, used under Creative Commons Attribution License. Additional music and sound effects by Callum Robertson. This has been a Wooden Dice production. Fun fact for you is that the cyanotype, which will light fade, actually when you put it back into dark storage, some of the image will come back. Wow, that's insane. But don't try it. Just just because cyanotypes do that, I am not advocating that you suddenly stick <laughs> all of your cyanotypes out on display. Because when they do go back into dark storage, some of the density comes back in the image. They don't come back to where it was before they were put yeah, out into yeah. the light. So you might have had oh, 100% wow. before it went out. And then when it comes back, yeah. it's 92%. Mm. So you've still lost some. But I just think that's a really interesting. But the only object that I know of any specialism that will actually reverse some of its light fading. That is crazy. It's Wolverine wow. of photos. <laughs> <laughs> Unkillable. Yeah. <laughs>